Good. Well, as the uh, kids and teachers roll out, I'd love to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there is one available. I believe Steve is going to be out there to kind of pass those things around. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you most certainly will need it. Um, it's just really helpful to have the Word of God open as we are uh, unpacking um, the, uh, the diamond that is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, so I am extremely excited to be here to preach one of the most amazing passages in all of the Bible. So I believe that wholeheartedly, and I can't believe that uh, Pastor Scott Terry gave that to me. Hey, I saw the email, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Okay, here we go. So I am thrilled uh, to have the opportunity uh, to just dis- display right here this morning God's wondrous work of salvation. Uh, so here's how I'd like to begin this morning. Now, some of you may have heard in the past of Methodist preachers from the 1700s. So guys like Charles and John Wesley. Maybe you know of them. Uh, they've uh, come up with a couple good hymns. Uh, or maybe George Whitfield. George Whitfield, one of the most amazing uh, preachers traveling to England, uh, to the United States during revival time. Uh, wonderful, wonderful men. But I'm, what I'm wondering here this morning is if you've heard of William Grimshaw. Now, at the young age of 24, William Grimshaw became a pastor. Here's the only problem. Well, he was, and this is what the biographer says, without any spiritual feeling and in utter ignorance of the duties of a minister of Christ's gospel. So, that's right, you heard it. He wasn't a believer, and he's the pastor of a church. So, he was completely enslaved to sin. He's drinking all the time. He's gambling, living a life of impurity. I mean, can you even imagine that being your pastor? Right? One, one moment your pastor's in the bar getting drunk and throwing all of his money away and gambling. And the next morning you come into the church and he's up here and he's preaching and he's got a hangover. I couldn't imagine that. He has no love for you. There's no love for the congregation. It's a complete train wreck. It's a horror story. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved William Grimshaw, made Grimshaw alive. Oh, that's a good story. But it's not over. God wasn't done with Grimshaw. No, Grimshaw would then move to this small blue-collar town and minister the good news of the gospel for the rest of his days. So he pursued good works that God called him to with more vigor, more zeal, and more passion than maybe anybody else I've ever read. Just a plug here, if you've never read this Christian biography, uh, I will buy it for you myself, right? I mean, so here's the example of this man propelled by good works to go in faith. So he would go, And uh, he would go to this church. People would come all across England, all of his good friends, they would come and visit him. And so when they would come to visit him, what does he do? Well, he gives him his own bed. He gives them his own bed to sleep in. Where does he sleep? He sleeps in the hayloft in the barn. Not only that, but then the next morning, his guests would find him cleaning their shoes and preparing all their luggage for their leave. So he ministered not only to their physical, to their hearts, he ministered to their physical needs. He'd hike for hours to visit members of the church, and he'd hunt them down 
any of them who were in the congregation who were skipping out on the service. He would chase them down the street and get them inside the building. (laughs) But just think of it. Grimshaw's faith was dead, right? It was in vain until God brought his dead heart to life. And in light of his salvation, he was overwhelmed by God's saving work, which compelled him then to pursue good works for the glory of Christ's name. Now, what does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 2? Why am I telling you this story about this awesome pastor? Well, we're going to see this morning that the resounding theme of all of humanity is death. But God reconciled his people, making them alive with him, raising them and seeding them with Christ. And now the people of God walk in good works that God provides to the praise of his wondrous glory. And so with that said, this morning, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, you're going to notice that we have three main points this morning. Number one, the nature of man. Number two, the work of God. And three, the gift of God. Now, I think it's helpful to recall what Paul's been emphasizing throughout the book thus far. You guys have preached, what, there have been four sermons you've heard so far. So in chapter one, Paul gives his audience a glimpse of the salvation that has been ordained by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. And then he jumps right into thanksgiving and prayer, doesn't he? Right? Verses 15 through 23, listen to that sermon, awesome sermon from Pastor Scott. And he said in there that God would give eyes to see. And what does he want us, the people of God, to see? Right? Three things. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward Christians? And then he jumps right in to and, and then into verse 1 of chapter 2. So let's pick up there, and we're going to read together in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How wonderful is that? Now, before we see the intricacies of the great salvation, don't worry, it's coming, Paul is unpacking a ton of information about who we were, right? Just grasping the resounding theme of death. So that's where we see, A, the declaration of death. Just look at Paul, how Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So just pause right there. Right away, Paul has thrown the declaration of death right onto the table. You were dead. 
Now, who's the you that Paul has in mind here? Well, of course, this is the church in Ephesus, but it totally applies to us. We were dead. We're going to see this. But the reference he makes of their deadness, it's in the past. It's past tense, isn't it? Yeah, Paul writes, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You once were dead. You know, when I was mulling over this text, I couldn't help but ask myself, how were they dead? How was I actually dead? I mean, I had a pulse. I was sinning. I still sin, but at that time, I was dead in my sin, and I was still breathing. My, my, my heart didn't stop. I wasn't physically dead, was I? No. No, this isn't a physical death. This is a spiritual death. Now, some of us here may be like, oh, good, I like that. That's better than physical death. No, 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 it is so much worse. It, it may not feel necessarily real to you at this current moment, but I assure you, it totally is. I mean, just think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam sins, and what happens? They were considered spiritually dead, right? Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And how do we know this to be true? Well, after God declares the curse on all of creation, they're still alive physically, right? But then they are cast out of the garden. They're cast out. They're cast away from the presence of the Lord, so hear me when I say this this morning. With spiritual death comes complete and utter separation, alienation from God. So those who are dead in sin are those who are alienated from the one who actually gives life. That's God himself. That's terrifying news here. But just picture the state of humanity. Right? There's no breath in the spiritual lungs of these people. There, there's a large grave, and the dead are piled miles high in this grave. And it's not a six-foot grave. No, this is an infinite distance from the Lord. No relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's complete ruin. Buried alive. I want you to catch the imagery. It's weighty. We were dead in our sin. Completely dead. Now, Paul doesn't just tell his audience that we were dead in sin, but then he actually displays the very activity of those who were dead. The walking dead lived in a certain manner. Right? He speaks of being the very activity of the dead. Just look with me at verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, notice that there's a manner in which these dead, buried sinners walked, right? And this is actually the current step of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, right? This isn't a universal thing that's changed here. This is what took place in all of mankind. According to Paul, they followed after three different influences, right? You just see that in the text. They follow the course of this world, they follow the prince of the power of the air, and they follow the passions of their flesh. All right, so these 
two verses that Paul describes here are the activities of the dead, the spiritually dead. But what does it actually mean to once walk following the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following after the flesh? Well, this was the conduct of those who were dead. This is how those who are dead in their sins and trespasses walk day by day. So there's a clear distinction made in these two verses, isn't there? When we were dead in our sins, we didn't follow after God, did we? No, we followed the course of this world, a broken, sin-cursed world. But not only did we follow the world, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? That's not usually in my vocabulary. But who is the prince of the power of the air? Well, it's none other than Satan himself. Those who are dead, spiritually speaking, those who are dead in their sin and trespasses, are under the influence, they're followers of the devil, which we clearly see in the other portions of the Bible. Right? Just think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, of the dead in sin. For what purpose? To keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel. Or even 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are, uh, are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of who? Of the evil one. So who's the evil one? Who's the God of this world? It's the devil. It's terrifying. And so what's the evil one doing? According to verse 2. Right? It says he's at work in the sons of disobedience. Those who are dead. Those who are dead are under the authority of Satan. That's who they follow. That's their master. That's their Lord. That's a sad reality. And one that we like to bypass. No, no, no. I, I was just following nothing. I wasn't following God, but I definitely wasn't following Satan. No, but actually, the Bible is clear. That's who we followed. We, and he was at work in those who were disobedient. Look at verse 3, though. Among whom we all, notice the change here. We, Paul's including himself, not just you, right? Notice we all once lived. So this is a reality that all of humanity has and may sadly continue to experience, right? Even including Paul here. We walked according to the world, the devil, and lastly, according to the flesh. This is a universal problem. It's not like God, you know, it's not like we were missed in this issue. No, we are collectively included in this problem. No one's safe. No one's without sin. So we all, every one of us, once lived in our flesh. This was our story. One through three shows exactly who we were, declared dead before the king. And then just look at the third influence we saw here, right? The idea that we once lived in the flesh. So it, it, here, this idea holds unbelieving humanity in bondage to sin and from which they need Deliverance. So those who walk according to the flesh, they do what they want, no matter what offense it is to God. Right? They live for the pleasures of their sinful flesh, either without remorse or without the desire to truly put off the flesh. So in either circumstance, whichever way you think about it, both love their sin more than they love God. 
Why? Because they don't love God. They love all things in the world. How about you this morning? When you hear these truths, and they are truths about sin, do you say, I could care less what God says? I could care less if this is an offense before the king of the universe, right? If you say, I am the captain of my own soul, you say that? If that's you this morning, I'm pleading with you that you recognize the terrifying statement that you are uttering. I mean, you will one day face the King of glory, the Lord himself. And as you stand before you make your maker, what will you possibly say? Are you going to say, yeah, I could care less what you said? No. No, those who remain dead in their sin will be eternally separated from God. Eternal damnation. But I appeal to you. That does not have to be the end. I appeal to you to trust Christ. If you do not know him as Lord, I would encourage you this morning to treasure the Lord of glory, the one who accomplished the work of salvation with his own blood by dying on a cross that sinners like you and me deserved. And then he rose from the dead conquering Satan himself. That God is able to rescue from death. That God is able to rescue from judgment. So don't be foolish this morning. Don't just sit here in opposition to the king as time is rushing by. Trust Christ, the great soul satisfier. He's mighty to save you to the uttermost. And so I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to just picture right, this continued bleak uh, image we have here before us. The dead lie in a grave that's an infinite distance from a holy God. And each influence, right, following the ways of the world, the devil and the flesh, only depicts the severity of our situation. We're in big trouble if we don't get verses 4 through 10. Big trouble. So humanity is buried alive under the weight of their sin. There's no air. There's no life. This is the bleakest, most dark language in the entire New Testament. So with this description comes an even darker result. See the judgment of the dead. Look at verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. And this is not just a judgment for a select few. No, look at verse 3 again. Like the rest of who? Just a few people? No, like the rest of mankind. Everyone is under judgment. So the penalty of our sins, which have been laid quite openly before us, are a direct result of our separation from a holy God. The penalty here, we see clearly. The penalty is God's wrath. God's judgment. But what does it mean that we were by nature children of wrath? Well, I think it harkens back to the reality that we're born in sin because of Adam. Just listen to the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. Right? Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to 
all men. Because why? Because all sin. Verse 18a. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for, hear it again, all men. Do you pick up the language that Paul's using? Before we ever took a breath, one single breath, because of Adam's sin, we are sinners through and through. This isn't my interpretation of the text. This is what God has said in his words. We're all sinners. I mean, think about your own upbringing. Do you know what my first word was when I was a baby? Right? It wasn't mommy. It wasn't daddy. It was no. It was no. Do you want some food? No. Let's put you down for a nap. No. And when I didn't get it my way, what did I do? I threw a tantrum right in the middle of the aisle of a stinking Walmart. A sinner. You don't teach your kids that kind of stuff. I'm praying that I'm not going to say, all right, little girl, I'm going to teach you. When you see that toy you want, I want you to start screaming and kicking me. No, we don't do that. They do that instinctively. And that's the case with all of humanity. Sin is intrinsic and it's instinctive to all of humanity. Why? Because we are all sinners in Adam. Now, do you believe this truth? I could say that all day. You can nod your head, but in your heart say, this guy, full of junk. Do you believe that you're a sinner in Adam and deserving of God's judgment? Do you actually believe that? We were in opposition to God. In fact, we continually committed cosmic treason against the creator and sustainer of the universe. The one who holds your breath, you sin against continually. Every sin, every thought, every deed, every wicked motivation is ultimately and most significantly sin against the Lord Almighty. That's weighty. We deserve God's judgment. Rightly deserved it. We were dead men before the king. No hope. Condemned. Enemies, joyfully, of the cross of Christ. And rightly deserving of God's judgment. Just think of your life before Christ. For just a single moment. How much of a wretch you were. But here, verse 4. But God. Yeah, that's a good verse. Those are some of the sweetest two words you could possibly think of. It are two of the greatest words in all the Bible. When you were dead, following after everything except God, what did he do for you? Look at verse 4 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now just hear the massive contrast here between verses 1 through 3 and verse 4, right? But God, he stepped in and he changed the entire script, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. So notice who the author of this glorious work is. It's God. It's not you. 
It's the one who's rich in mercy with great love, who acts mercifully towards sinners. Now, you know, in the Greek here, right, in this entire section, verses 1 through 10, it's just two sentences. Paul doesn't like writing a lot of different sentences here. It's pretty uh, elaborate, but just, just tons of little or, or strong verses here, sentences. And so in these two very complex sentences, we have one of the greatest mysteries described. But how is it that in this same sentence, Paul can actually affirm the holiness of God and the love of God? How can he actually keep intact the wrath that God's going to pour out and the love that he displays? Well, we must clearly realize that the Bible isn't at odds with one another here. No, actually the Bible expresses these two glorious truths in tandem throughout the entirety of Scripture. Right? Just think back to Exodus chapter 34 where he displays, God displays his glory to Moses. Exodus 34, 6-7 says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a loving God. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you hear that? There's absolutely no tension between God's steadfast love and his wrath upon those who are most certainly deserving. And this is the God that saved you from death. This is this glorious king. Just look at verses 5 through 7 in Ephesians with me as we uncover the means of God's grace toward you. Right? So just look at verse 5 and onward. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we must understand that everything in this passage is anchored entirely to this one verse, right? Verse 5, which says, God made us alive. Oh yes, when you were dead, when you were condemned, when you were following after the world, the devil, and your own flesh, God made your dead heart come to life. God did it. You didn't do that. Because dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Dead people aren't good at CPR. No, dead people are dead. So God had to intervene in your place. And that's a glorious truth for us this morning. I mean, just think of the entirety of the Bible. Think of the Gospels. Think of the narrative of Jesus raising that four days dead guy, Lazarus. I'm sure you are familiar with the story. I mean, you're imagining this guy's dead. He's a friend of yours. You're kind of showing up late to the party. Four days have gone by. Jesus shows up on the scene. The sisters of Lazarus are all a mess. Everybody's mourning and weeping. You're out at this tomb, and it's shut. The guy's been dead. Family's weeping. Friends are just broken. You just hear the wailing of all these people. And with a word, what did Jesus do? He said, come out, Lazarus. And what did Lazarus do? The text is clear. John chapter 11, verse 44 says, the man who died came out. 
And so don't miss this, brothers and sisters. The resurrection that Christ performed for Lazarus is the same resurrection that Christ performed on your dead heart. Your condemned heart. That was made alive with Christ. We were made alive by God's intervening, regenerating work by the Spirit of God. But notice the backbone of this truth, that our dead hearts were made alive. It is what? By your doing? No, that's not what the text says. It says it was done by grace that we are saved. Grace and grace alone. We didn't deserve an ounce of his grace. We deserved death. We had no hope. And in the midst of despair came a tidal wave of grace lavished, unmerited favor upon you. Not only are we told that we have been made alive with Christ, Paul adds another wondrous truth here. Verse 5, that God raised us up with him. That's Jesus. He raised us up with Christ. But how are we in the present raised with him, Jesus, when we're still on earth? Right? We're not raised up into heaven right now. No, we're currently here. But how does this actually work? I mean, sure, we have a new heart by grace, but I'm still on planet earth. At least I think I am. But Paul's clearly hinting at the resurrection of Christ. We're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So Paul's making a major connection here between our new life and Christ's resurrection. Just look at Paul's prayer. You heard it last week, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Just flip back, because Paul's not making up some random arguments here. No, they're extremely connected. Look what it says in verse 19 of chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might? And what is that great work? Just look, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Oh my, what a connection Paul's making. So the same work that God did in Jesus, raising him from the dead, is the exact same work that he's done in you, in those he's made alive in Christ. That's a glorious passage here for us. Right, so just hear this. There's a commentator by the name of Tony Merida. He's a pastor down south, and this is what he said about this glorious event of our resurrection in Christ, being raised with him. He says this, In some astonishing way, when Christ got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Tony Merida got up with him. But this isn't just the story of a guy named Tony Merida. No, this is the story also about you and me. We all who have been saved by grace. When Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised with him. And don't miss it. By grace, you have been saved. This is all of grace. You weren't climbing any ladders to raise yourself with Christ. It's an act of God. And not only did God make his people alive, not only did God raise us with Christ, but what does Paul tell us next? Verse 6, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So once again, Paul is echoing back to his prayer from verse 20 of chapter 1. When he raised him from the dead and seated him, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
Now, you may hear this and be thinking, what on earth are you talking about, Paul? I'm here in Portland, Maine. I'm not seated anywhere else but in this church. This isn't heaven here. And you're quite right. No, nothing against Maine. I love Maine. It's a wonderful state. But what Paul's getting at here is that there's an already not yet reality in play. So we are right now, if you're in Christ, trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are right now raised and seated with him. But we most certainly await the consummation of all things when Christ returns from his bride. Already, but not yet raised and seated. But through Christ's saving work, there's a heavenly dimension here to our life. You've been seated even now with Christ. And here's the thing with authority over sin and death. That's a biblical reality. Just listen to this concept from 1 Corinthians 3.21. Same guy writing this letter, different audience, right? Paul writes, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. So those dead and raised in Christ now in one sense have authority over sin and death. Death is your servant, not your enemy. Why? Because you are Christ and Christ is God's. He's the one seated. We are co-heirs with Christ, which should give us all the more boldness and confidence in our God, because Christ conquered sin, death, and the devil. And in so doing, by his resurrection, he has ushered forth his people into a position of power over sin by the Spirit of God. Not as God, but as co-heirs, co-members with Christ. It's because of him. By grace, you've been saved. By grace, you have been empowered. Just hear the truth found in Romans eight thirty-seven. No, in all these things, we what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here's the beauty of our seat with him in the heavenly places. You have power right now over sin. Some of you are like, no, I don't. Well, I'd encourage you to continue to think. It is true that the world, your flesh, the devil are still waging war on this earth. We're still battling a raging war of sin. But you, dear believer, are now free. You're free in Christ. You're empowered by the Spirit of God to live following the maker of this world, not the wicked, evil one of this world. You are able to walk in and newness of life. You have been saved from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, which means you can walk by faith in Christ and put sin to death in your mortal body. That's a promise that you have in the scriptures to fight hard against sin. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing in fighting sin Daily, Are you growing in your hatred of sin and identifying blind spots in your life and cutting them off where they are? I'd appeal to you this morning to recognize the glorious work of Christ on the cross. The fact that he was poured out in your stead. Blood was shed on your behalf. And the Spirit wrought power 
that you now have to walk in newness of life. So in Christ's resurrection, we, by the power of the Spirit of God who is at work in us, can truly fight. We can truly fight sin with zeal against the deeds of the flesh. So if you're struggling with pride, you most certainly can kill it and walk in humility. If you're struggling with lust, you most certainly can kill it and walk in purity. If you're struggling with envy, you most certainly can kill it and walk in contentment. Why? Because God made you alive. He rose you from the dead and he seated you in a position with Christ, authority over sin. Not because you did anything, but because Christ reigns in victory. Oh man, that gives us boldness to run hard with zeal. We're called to live in light of our new life without question. So fight. Fight by the power of God to put off the old man who wages war on your soul. Oh, fight. Verse 7. Paul writes, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the result here of your dead heart being made alive, raised with Christ, seated with the Lord in glory, is that in ages to come, ages upon ages, thousands upon thousands of years to come, God would continue to express his matchless grace towards you in the Lord. It's a display of God's good work. So just catch this here. The grace that you and I have received from Christ alone is unfading. That doesn't end. It's imperishable. It's inexhaustible. You can't tame it. You can't handle it. You can't count it. You can't even fathom it. Really. It's infinite, abundant grace. Right? The grace of God dispensed through the ages to come is like a raging grease fire. Hopefully none of you have had one of these, but you can't stop that thing. You just keep throwing water on it, and what happens? The flames increase. They remain, and it's the same with God's wondrous grace. It will be known and will be on display for all to see throughout all of eternity, throughout every single age to come. And guess what? We're going to be there seated with Christ on high to see and enjoy it forever. God didn't just save you in a moment and said, forget it for all of eternity. No, he said, see it and remember it and delight in it as you delight in your Savior forever. I can't wait for that day. So it's clear from our text, the purpose for God displaying his grace is that we might be the demonstration of that very grace forever. We, he will see us and all of creation that will be there in those days will see us, which is the epitome of God's grace lavished on sinners throughout all ages to come. And we will be a testament to his unrivaled kindness. He gives grace rather than wrath to his saints. And we're going to be forever the trophies of that grace to expand the cosmic universe in glory to our God for his good work among those who deserved hell in a handbasket. That's what we're going to enjoy. So with all this said, Paul now turns and unpacks three, the gift of God. And this gift of salvation is one that is by grace through faith, by grace not works, and created for good works. So by grace through faith. Let's read verses 
8 through 10 here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now Paul begins here in this verse by telling us of the great mystery and the harmony that faith and grace are. Right. So as seen in verse 4, we've been saved by grace. But now Paul doubles down on this reality and then adds, you have been saved through faith, by grace, through faith. So by believing in the Lord Jesus, by putting your faith and trust in Christ alone, we recognize that we are experiencing the grace of God through faith. But Paul adds here, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Notice the alternatives, contrast remarks here. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So this is a work that is all of grace once again. Look at the latter part of verse 8. It is the gift of God. Now, what exactly is the gift of God? Believe it or not, there is a ton of back and forth on this. Scholars can't figure it out. They can't make heads or tails of it. So is Paul referring to the gift of grace, or is it just faith that he has in mind as the gift? Well, it seems here to encapsulate all the above. Both grace and faith is the gift. Right? R. Kent Hughes is extremely helpful here. And he'd agree. He says, all of salvation is the gift. Grace is of him. Faith is of him. Our union with Christ is all of him. The works we do are of him. And the intention to actually do them are of him. They're of God. So what's the purpose of this verse then? Well, it's to produce in us a greater sense of our humility and our fragility as humanity. We don't have anything apart from Christ. Look at verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one may do what? May boast. So this salvation is by grace, not your works. You can't earn this by your doing. Just notice the contrast once again between the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. Your salvation is a gift in contrast to a result of works. Right? It's not by anything you could have done. It's a gift of God. So the main claim that Paul's making in these verses is that your salvation isn't about you. It has nothing to do with you. My favorite quote probably in the entire world, Jonathan Edwards. It's a good one. It's really good. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You contributed nothing. It had to be a gift of God because you would have never come. You hear that? God's the orchestrator. He's the author. He's the sustainer of your salvation. So salvation is a gift. It's of grace. It's not of your works. And for what purpose? Verse 9, so that no one may boast. So according to Paul, there's no way you can boast in your salvation. There's no way you can say, look what I did. No, why? Because you were dead when God did it. You weren't half dead. You were 100% dead and buried, enjoying sin. This isn't your doing. Just think back to Ephesians 1 and 2. Everything you've heard so far in this sermon series, God called you before the foundation 
of the world. God the Spirit sealed you. Christ the Son accomplished your salvation. And what do we see in chapter 2? God made your dead heart alive. He bound you with Christ through his resurrection and seated you in heavenly places with Christ. Matchless, unbelievable grace. But what's the proper response to this truth? All of these truths that we've seen. I think there are a ton. The first one that came to my mind as I was thinking through my own salvation was worship. Awe and reverence for this mighty king. The one who came to earth, lived a perfect sinless life. Died the death that I fully deserve to die and was raised from the dead three days later conquering sin, death, and the devil that you would be made, that I would be made alive and freed from the power of sin forevermore. And that's entirely of grace. You didn't do a thing. That's unbelievable. But let me ask you, And I asked myself the same questions this week, and I continue to do so. Are you overwhelmed by this God? Right now, are you overwhelmed by what he's done? And if not, why not? What's going on? What has your attention right now? Is it your bills? Is it your kids? Is it your job? If you're a believer in Christ this morning, what brings you your greatest joy? What brings you your greatest joy more so than unmerited favor from Christ? What's stealing your joy this morning? I pray that nothing would steal our joy. That we would be fighting to be desiring Christ above all else. That we would be the most joyous people because I, because you, a wretch, have been saved by grace through faith. He's worthy of of our worship, brothers and sisters. He is so worthy of all honor and praise. And so if he's not treasured in your life, it's not because of his insufficiencies. It's because of your lack of eyesight. God is good. Oh, he's so good. But notice what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we have no ability to boast. (laughs) He makes that pretty clear here, right? Why? For or because we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship, meaning we're God's new creature. We're his new creation. This isn't a blanket statement for all of humanity. This is for the new people of God who have been made alive by Christ alone by the death, resurrection of Christ. So here's another display of God's work and not your own. He created you for a purpose and one of those purposes is for you to do good works. Now just catch the idea here. You were created for good works. You were not made new by good works. Paul's clear. We need to be very clear. You are most certainly not saved by your works. You are saved by grace through faith. Right? The old reformers were really helpful at this. It is by faith alone that justifies, but that faith that justified can never be alone. Right? There is root, there's the root of faith, and there is the fruit that comes with your faith. And so what's the result of your salvation by grace through faith, according to Paul? You partake in good works. 
One, one scholar comments on this very saying. He says, This is the activity of the elect that flows out of God's work in their lives as his new creation. This is what we do as the people of God. We work for the good of God's glory. Now just don't misunderstand me this morning. This isn't some rote duty. No, good works flow from the hearts of those who have been overwhelmed by the glory of the gospel. That's what makes us move. That's what makes us desire to perform these good works. I was dead, right? I had no hope. I was a rebel. And he saved me. Just like he saved William Grimshaw. Just like he saved the Apostle Paul. Wicked men, wicked women following after the world. But now they're changed. And they have have new desires, new godly affections to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, pursuing the good works that God has provided. It's without expectation. Right? Doing these good deeds without reservation. Without expectation. Now you may be asking yourselves, what exactly do those good works look like? I only know when we talk about good works, you usually think, that's bad. No, Paul intends this for us to be a good thing. What does it look like for me in the here and now to do these good works, to be at work doing this? Well, we must see the need, number one, to walk in the good work of growing in the fruit that God has provided. The, the work that God has supplied. So are you pursuing right now at this very moment love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? Are you pursuing the fruit of the Spirit of God from Galatians? Are you tirelessly putting off the fruit of the flesh? Right, so if, if you find that there are patterns of sin in your life, there's some things that you should be working through. Not because, well, if I do these things, then God's going to love me more. No. No, in light of your salvation, you see the depth of your sin. So I hate that. I hate sin. So I got to put that off as God has commanded me in the scriptures. So if you find that there are those patterns of besetting sins, so first identify the sin and call it what it is. It's sin. And then scour the scriptures to see God's hatred for that particular sin. Oh, that's where I'm still lacking. And then what? Well, look into the scripture and see how God turns that on its head. Look and see how Jesus And his work on the cross actually covers your sin and commands you to live radically different. Right? For me, I'm a selfish dude. And so I looked at Philippians chapter 2. It says, humble yourself, love the Lord, and follow in his example. What did he do? He was poured out for the good of others. He died a humiliating cross death. I'm going to pursue Christ and Christ-likeness. I'm going to put to death selfishness and walk in humility for the sake of others. But that's not the only way in which we should be pursuing and thinking through good works. You know, a lot of times I th- when I think of good works, I think you got to go to like Africa for six months or something and like starve yourself and just hug a bunch of kids. No, I don't think that's the category that we necessarily have to have. That's a great work. That's really nice. Preaching the gospel to these kids overseas. I think sometimes of preaching or teaching or disciple making. Those are all wonderful things, good things that we should be pursuing. But I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's more to do. And this is so encouraging. Here are some of the good works God has provided for us. Right now. Do the dishes at home. Love your wife and kids. 
love your husband. When you're taking care of three children, when you're just wrangling, trying to get things together, that's a good work. When you're reading your Bible, when you're faithfully praying, when you're tithing to your local church, when you're taking out the trash, when you're loving others in the church, well, those are good works. Do not discredit those good works. Pursue them without end. So just hear what I'm saying. With the big things and the mundane things of your life, they're good works for you to walk in. It should not be neglected. It should be treasured. I just think of John Wesley. He said this, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever possibly can, by faith, by the power of God, propelled to do good works. But look at verse 10. We got to hear the rest of it. This is where the, just the crux of the matter lands. Verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God not only chose you before the foundation of the world, as seen in chapter 1, verse 4, right? But he also prepared the good works of your life for you. So God activates us. He sets us on mission using our very lives as vessels to perform the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But for what purpose? Just listen to Colossians 1.10. It's extremely helpful for us. Listen to what Paul says. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in what? Every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what's the purpose according to Paul in Colossians? It's that God would be glorified in your good works. That he would be a treasure. That he would be treasured as he's actually due. And this is an amazing salvation. That we were dead in our sins, and God made us alive through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now he empowers us to pursue good works that he has prepared for us before time began. That we would walk in them for his glory. This isn't a a life to be spent to make you look good. It's to make much of God. It's all of grace. Matchless, wondrous grace. Is it not? This is the glory of God's gospel. May God give us the grace to be a people that recall to mind our glorious salvation, that we would remember, that we would never ever forget how God reconciled us to himself, that we would live our entire lives submitting ourselves to his design and for his glorious purposes until he returns in glory. Let's pray. Father, what a wondrous salvation you have accomplished for your people. Lord, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. We loved ourselves. We loved the world. We loved Satan. But God, you did an amazing work in our hearts. You raised us from the dead. 
that we would now walk in newness of life for your glory alone. And so we pray that even in our very day, that we would pursue good works, not for our own display of goodness, not for our own displays of glory, not that we would be worshipped, but that you would be worshipped above all else, that your glory would go forth, that it would fill the earth, and the whole world would be satisfied with how good you are. Lord, we pray that we'd be conformed into Christ as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.